The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. It's really wonderful to be back in New York, um, and particularly with the contrast with politics in Washington, it's nice to be in a truly intellectual city. And I don't say that to flatter <laughs> you, but just because so many hierarchies reach their pinnacle here with strategic thinkers in so many fields, and so it's really an exciting city to be in, and I genuinely miss it. Uh, uh, Washington has its own rewards, but they're of a different nature. Uh, also, I want to thank NYIT very much for the venue on behalf of both myself and this evening, but also the cooperation you've given to the National uh, Committee. I want to thank Kate. Uh, and I really want to say with my, the SICE students, it's really nice to see you prosperous and doing well and and doing important things. I'm always heartened. I mean, in the end, that's what a teacher hopes to see, that people can use, define their own meaning and, and succeed. And it's just nice to see people that are moving along that, that track. And uh, finally, uh, uh, I don't know how, how long we'll be able to have four presidents of the National Committee in the same room here, but uh, I hope for many more years. Uh, now, what I'd really like to do is say that I think this, I want to say a word about the National Committee and its mission because it's relevant to, as Steve said, not only that I wrote this book and the materials I had to do it, but uh, more fundamentally, the book is about the same problem that the National Committee is, uh, I think, a uh, problem set that the National Committee is designed to deal with. And I guess I think there are two big missions that uh, we, we face are big sets of problems in U.S.-China relations. One is that sort of the geo, geopolitical tectonic plates in the world are really changing. And the world that we've come through in the last 40 years of progressive, I would say, relations with China, uh, th this world is changing, and it's changing in ways that I, in many respects, wish it were not changing. But I think we need to understand those changes, their implications, and work around them, because ultimately, I'm an optimist about our, our relations. But the, the way in which it's changing is Asia's countries are not only getting stronger and richer, but they're becoming more nationalistic. And it's not just China that's nationalistic. It's Japan. It's the Philippines. It's the Korean Peninsula. It's India. And the problem is going to be managing these competing progressing societies with strong nationalism. I think that's one of the things that's changing. You have some slowing economies throughout the region that are creating pressures. We have uh, U.S., I, I, I would never say decline, and I don't believe decline, but relative dominance is declining because others are being successful, whereas in the Cold War they were not successful. So the U.S. is going to have to be uh, come to terms with, uh, in a sense, more limited relative uh, capabilities. And then in all our societies, the driving force of domestic politics and the tendency for leaders to grandstand with their domestic audiences when that's really not in the interest of either the domestic audiences or stability in the world. And I think you've seen all these tendencies to a very a considerable extent now. And I think the committee and many organizations like it, but I think most of all the committee is trying to bring some understanding of just how dramatically the world and Asia in particular is changing. The other thing, and I think is a more hopeful, is people say, back when Nixon went to China, 
Well, you at least had the common enemy of the Soviet Union. It may have been a narrow base, but it was really a strong base for U.S.-China relations. Well, maybe, and it certainly it was, but when you lost the Soviet Union, you also lost the rationale. And I think what we need to do is realize that there is a strategic rationale for U.S.-China relations that is much potentially stronger than that. And what is it? And it basically derives from the fact that China has enormous internal problems. My book is about no one would want to trade the problems of China for the United States. No one in their right mind would want that. So, so China's got enormous problems and has to realize that uh, Deng, had, Deng Xiaoping had a lot of wisdom when he said, let's pay attention to the internal problems and pacify the outside. I see some tendencies in China not as skillful as in the past. And in the same way, the United States, we may be at a different absolute level of per capita income, but we're in essentially the same position. We need to renew our infrastructure, our educational systems, uh, our research and development, and we can't afford China as our number one security problem. This seems as clear as the nose on my face. And so this book was really written in, in the context of those problems. And uh, so I want to talk a little, first of all, about how I came to write the book. And then I want to talk just briefly about a couple of lessons I learned and uh, wind up with what I think the agenda for China in the first case and how we might relate to that agenda in the second. Uh, the book covers a lot of topics. And those of you that are interested in security might be interested particularly in the uh, chapters on the civil-military relationship. Over time, I had a lot of interaction with military people, and I was surprised to find out how much information I had on civil-military relations in China. There's a whole chapter on negotiating with the Chinese. Heaven knows uh, we had lots of negotiations throughout the history of both the relationship and the committee's interaction uh, with China. Uh, also, there's a, a lot of, uh, uh, an entire chapter on how Chinese leaders' views of the world have changed over time, and I think they have changed dramatically in the direction of recognizing the importance of interdependence. So uh, those on the security side might be more interested in that. Those of you interested in domestic politics, I have a chapter on leadership and governing China. What are the problems that when you get up in the morning and pull your pants on as a Chinese leader, what is the agenda you're facing? And none of us would want that agenda. Also, the Chinese come to understanding leadership in a somewhat different way than I think we do in, in the West. I think if all my chapters, the ones I'm, uh, it, it relates to governance, I think is most revealing. It's called nightmares. Because I was always struck when I went through these notes and I, I got it into a computer system and you could search for the repeating words across time. And dreams and sleep. And what interrupts my dreams? What interrupts my sleep? Particularly Zhu Rongji used to use this kind of metaphor to kind of indi indicate, I, I'm worried about a lot of things, but I'm really worried uh, about this. And so it talks about the kinds of problems that China's leadership uh, uh, confronts. Uh, another chapter on governance is, deals with how the Chinese make policy, uh, both in foreign policy and domestic policy. So Broad range, if you're interested in domestic politics, I think there's something there. And if you're interested in foreign policy and international relations, something there for you. Now, 
uh, how I came to write the book, uh, I think as Jan Barris and all, all the people that have attended meetings with me over the years realize I'm a compulsive note taker. Uh, quite frankly, for the reason not so much to create a historic record of sorts, but because I pay attention when I'm taking notes. I actually listen to what's being said. And if I miss something, I just, I just keep writing and it, it, it is there. So it was more a learning a device uh, for me. Uh, Jan Barris, the vice president of the National Committee, has an absolutely monumental set of notes. She has basically, as far as I can see, Jan, the same compulsion. Uh, and she was kind enough to provide, particularly she went to China before I did, and of course went to many meetings I didn't go to over the years. And so her making a set of notes was really enormous. And if you go through the footnotes, you'll just see the contribution. I would say many of the more important interviews were actually ones that she uh, recorded. It's kind of interesting how uh, idiosyncratic it is uh, to sort of focus on a, a book. I was sitting at my desk one day wondering, what should I write on? And I looked at my steel cases, just file cases across from my desk, and I said, I wonder what's in all that, all those drawers. And I said, well, actually, it's all my notes from the last 40 years. I mean, I just created a file, and it goes just mindlessly chronologically. Uh, and so I said, well, that's a wonderful data set. All I had to do was transcribe them all into a computer program and that became an enormous job, and then I don't think I'm telling tales out of school. Jan has a code system that's absolutely indecipherable, basically, without enormous effort. So it took a long time, but I have this now a set of 558 interviews. In addition, there are some uh, interviews. I went into the freedom of information in the government to get a few presidential or high-level um, interviews. I didn't use, for instance, Herb Levin's here. I didn't use Kissinger's enormous because that's already been published. So I tried to pick things, uh, the few that I used uh, that weren't uh, published. But the long and the short of it is probably the most... Um, uh, unusual uh, aspect of this is it's an attempt to let Chinese leaders describe the world as they understand it. I try to always tell my students that, you know, it's interesting what you think, but it's important what your interlocutor thinks, because in the end, your interlocutor is going to operate according to their perception of the world, their understanding, their values, and their interests. And if the first job in dealing effectively with people is to understand how they view the situation and what their objectives are. You can have your opinions, and ultimately you have to reconcile the, op, the, the, the interlocutor's needs with your own, but the place to start is with what the other guy thinks. And this book is an attempt to let all that material, as best I could, speak for what I understood to be sort of an evolving uh, Chinese leadership view of the world and governing China over the last 45 years. Now, obviously, uh, I, I realize, and anybody would realize, a foreigner with his, even if I had relatively good exposure to China, it's infinitely small in comparison to what is total exposure. But nonetheless, uh, that was uh, the, the effort. Uh, just at the end, I have an appendix that it's really about interviewing in China and how I tried to do it. And interviews are, for the purposes of this book, they include group meetings, uh, 
They include meetings that I never said anything. I was a fly on the wall for others. Some I actually, many I actually conducted. Uh, but the long and the short of it is I'm using interviews loosely, and I'm also using the word leaders loosely. One of the interesting things about China, I think, is that what you could reasonably call a leader has expanded over time. I mean, basically, leaders, when I, I went to China first in 76, were political leaders, political cadres, PLA officers, hacks. That, that was what purported to be a leader. Now you're really talking about intellectuals. You're talking about people in the media world. You're talking about CEOs. So over time, one of the interesting things is, is who you're talking to is expanding very rapidly. And so... Uh, so when I say leader, I don't mean just standing committee of the Politburo, although that may have been more what you meant in 1976 than today. So with all that background, sort of what did I learn? And what do I hope will be your broad takeaways, although I think it's like any other thing. When you put it out there, people have their own interpretation and meaning to attach to it. But I think one letter, le- lesson that comes through to me is you really do not want to be a Chinese leader. <laughs> and I say this for the, it is a, an awful job. It's, and I'll, I'll try to explain the dimensions on which I mean that, but basically it's a life punctuated in substantial measure by unanticipated crises thrown at you either by nature or an incompetent bureaucracy below you or a malevolent set of political forces. It is a very tough job, unpredictable, not in full control uh, many, uh, uh, much of the time. In, in fact, if you just think about the real estate China is situated on, and one of the things I really enjoyed was the chance to, to learn things I really hadn't known before. So after a while, you begin to see China has a lot of earthquakes. And so I go to the National Geological Survey website of the curiosity of major devastating earthquakes around the world, and you find China has vastly greater percentage of these events than almost any other place on Earth. If you're a Chinese leader, you can't really do it this way, but it it sort of illustrates. If you're a Chinese leader for 10 years, the odds are you're going to have a devastating earthquake that makes the San Francisco earthquake look like child's play which is where I grew up and thought was the biggest event nature ever threw uh, humanity. So uh, you just have this. You look at a, a seismological map, and, and with red being high seismological activity, you know, a huge percentage of China is red. So China's leaders just have to deal with this. If you uh, think about um, um, natural events, of hydrological, water, and the related infrastructure failures associated with not managing water correctly, it's really uh, enormous. I remember one of the interviews with, uh, with Zhang Zemin. He grew up near Shanghai and Yangzhou, a very water-intensive part of the Yangtze River Valley. He talked about floods that he faced in 1998, three in, in fairly rapid succession in 1998. And one was up towards the Soviet, or then the, uh, Russia, and one uh, sort of in southwest uh, China down towards Vietnam, and one in sort of uh, uh, southern China as well. Total 
240 million people displaced in China in rapid succession. I mean, that's two-thirds the population of the United States. And this is, uh, it's not a usual event in China, that concatenation. But just give you another example. 1975, they had two dams collapse because of a typhoon in Henan. The world didn't hear much about it, but 85,000 people were killed in two provinces. And the world almost didn't hear about it. So China's got these problems of, of that nature. But it's not just nature. It's also the incompetence and enormity of the bureaucracy you have operating on your behalf. And so you just take uh, 2005. There was a big multi-ton spill of benzene in the Sunghua River. It was 13 days before they notified the Russians that this toxic plume was heading for their cities in the Russian Far East, and Chinese leaders had to apologize because, in part, their own bureaucracy hid the news from them for some period of time. So it's not just what nature throws at you, but it's the nature of the bureaucracy and its response. Just think of something else. China has built enormous infrastructure, particularly in the, in the era of reform, and not least since the crash of 2008. Well, China's leaders are very worried about the quality of a lot of this infrastructure. And as time goes on and it's put under all this stress, there are going to be lots of problems. You had a recently up in Harbin a bridge collapse, and many people were killed. The, the Internet, the blogs, blogosphere were, were uh, irate about this. We keep having bad infrastructure corruption, no reinforcing bar. It happens over and over. How long will it take us to learn? So I think this is the... This is the world that China's leaders deal with. They don't stay up all night wondering how they can make our life more difficult. It's plenty difficult for them uh, at, at that. Now, it's not just you know, those aspects. It leads me to say you don't want to be a Chinese leader, but it's the nature of the policymaking system. You know, I live in Washington. I mean, you want to talk about a frustrating city, and we did legislative and... and uh, you know, executive branch relations and, and nonpartisan or no, uh, everything's partisan kind of. So I, I understand about great luck, but I would not trade Washington, D.C. politics for Chinese politics. And let me just make clear what I, uh, and the, the chapter on policymaking sort of deals with this. I look at the Chinese policymaking system as a very deep hierarchy. You start at the center, you go to the province, you go to special districts, you go to 2,200 counties, you go to 40,000 townships, you go to 600,000 villages, you got a really deep hierarchy. And then you have these, what they call the legs of the system, that try to penetrate down through all these levels. So you got lots of intersecting points where people have to coordinate. But let me just put it this way. Every central directive that's passed down that, through, uh, that system gets deflected in the direction of the interests of the people who are implementing it. And so by the time you go through six levels of the system, you've got pretty deflected policy going in many different directions. Also, this system funnels up all the insoluble problems to seven people at the top. If the village can't... It goes to the township. If the township can't deal with it, it goes to the county. If the county can't deal with it, it goes to the province. And then it goes to Beijing. And then ultimately it lands on the desk of seven people on the Politburo Standing Committee. Well, this is a reverse Niagara Falls of, 
of very difficult problems to deal with with 20% of the world's people. So I'm not trying to be maudlin and have, you know, I want to surprise you, I'm sympathetic for China's leaders. That's not, not the point. I think the point is that these are people trying to undertake a task that really has never been taken, undertaken before on a scale that's never been undertaken before. So I come away thinking, you know, the surprise isn't China's got problems. The surprise is it works as well as it does. Maybe that's what political scientists ought to be uh, looking at. So that's sort of a lesson one. Lesson two, am I going on too long? Uh, You've got about uh, three or four more minutes. Okay. This other lesson, and then I'll wind it up. A lot of people say, oh, China's had economic reform, but it hasn't had political reform. And I think, I mean, I understand what people mean. If you mean first ten amendments of the Constitution and so forth, I think true enough. But I guess what I would say at a deeper level, China's had enormous political change. And in fact, the problems China's leaders now are dealing with is precisely because there's been such enormous political change. What do I mean? If you think back when this book starts, Mao Zedong and then Deng Xiaoping, and you ask, are these strong leaders or weak leaders? I don't think we have to debate the point very much. If you look at the last leadership, I'll leave Xi Jinping. We can have Q&A. It's pretty early in his term. He's trying to gather power. Uh, But certainly Hu Jintao was not in the league of leadership strength as Deng and Mao. And I think there's been a general um, weakening of of Chinese leaders over time. We'll leave aside Mr. Xi for the moment. Uh, So first of all, you've got enormous problems with, I think, leaders that don't have the kind of clout in the system, whether it's for good, uh, Deng, or uh, not so good, perhaps, uh, Mao. Secondly, if you ask what how uh, homogeneous was the society that Mao and Deng were trying to, to govern. It was a pretty homogeneous society. Heav- heavily peasants. Of course, there were lots of geographic and dialect and e- economic differences. I don't mean to say China was homogeneous. But relatively speaking, it was not a very complicated society. And if you ask now, you'd really have to say China is a society divided into many interest groups. Uh, Interest group analysis really works a whole lot better now than it did uh, under Mao. So you've got a somewhat weaker leadership and a much more complicated, divided leadership. And then if you ask, what is the relative balance of power uh, resources the top had under Mao versus what the bottom has now, the Chinese people and, we'll say, civic organizations and subnational organizations of all sorts, they've got money. They've got knowledge. They have human resources. They've got a lot more capacity to push back against leadership. It may not look so terrific to the individualist American, but nonetheless, there's a lot of capacity now to push back. So what you have, in my view, is weaker leaders, more complicated, fragmented society, and a society itself that has greater pushback capacity. So then you have to ask, are the old political institutions optimal to manage the new society? And I think the short answer to the question is it's tough and it's going to become increasingly tough. And anyone who takes China's political stability for granted into some long indeterminate future, uh, they could conceivably be right. I'm not predicting 
you know, chaos, but let's put it this way, we would have no difficulty understanding severe political problems in China if they occurred. So ultimately, in my view, bringing this pol political set of institutions into alignment with this different society is really essential. Now you'll notice I have not said the word democracy. And we, that's a whole other uh, discussion we can have. And it's not to imply I'm against democracy. But I think what they have to do is provide accountability and transparency and responsiveness and a sense of legitimacy. If that happens through democracy, fine. If it happens through other mechanisms over a much longer time, I, I can live with that. But I think they've got to bring these two things uh, into greater alignment. So the long and the short of it is, uh, I think one can do, hardly do anything but be massively impressed with what the Chinese have accomplished, more so when you actually understand the problems they're facing. But past success is not a guarantee of future success. And so reform is like, you know, kind of like riding a bicycle. It's great how far you went, but unless you keep pedaling, you're probably going to fall off. So I think China's got to keep pedaling. Thank you very much. Did I go massively over time? Am I supposed to no, come no, back? No, no, no. Come, come sit. Okay. Come sit. Now you can. Um, this book, by the way, is very well footnoted. <laughs> you get 37 pages of footnotes. Uh -huh. it's, it's and I a, cut them down. Uh, that was really very impressive. In all these, what I was thinking of, in all these meetings, what was the single most surprising thing that was ever said to you when you sat there uh, and you kind of went? Well, oh. I won't mention the exact person, but I'll give the position. Uh, it was the premier, and it wasn't Zhu Rongji. Uh, and he was asked by a congressman, why did you lock up this professor at Beijing University, just out of the blue? Of course, as you know, Chinese leaders don't like to be surprised with embarrassing questions. I suppose nobody does, but, uh, and particularly the staff of leaders don't like their... Right. But uh, this uh, premier just sort of looked and he said, perhaps we need to have a different way of looking at this. I'm premier of 1.3 billion people. I basically don't have time for individuals. I'm dealing with massive groups. Maybe you need a different perspective. And I thought, in a way, that, that captured the governance problem. I'm not endorsing it. I, as I said, I, all of the, I'm trying to describe the mindset, not endorse it. Mm -hmm. But I think if we were trying to run a society of 1.3 we might not know the name of a professor that got arrested at Beida. Which is generally the answer. We yeah. don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, in the book, as you yeah. just ended your, your comments, you come mm -hmm. out strongly believing that, that China must engage in, in political reform, that economic reform is, right. is insufficient. And that's pretty much what you said here. It's what mm -hmm. you say in the book. Mm -hmm. Having just returned from China Sunday night, mm -hmm. it seems to me that there may be a decision that the leadership has made that we're going to defer any political mm -hmm. reform in all, in both your definition and democracy mm -hmm. as we undertake this massive 
enterprise to have this economic reform. It is mm -hmm. so overwhelmingly difficult, kind of the way you say you don't want to be a Chinese leader, because these problems are so severe that we're not going to engage in that. What do you, th do you think this is the case? And if it is the case, what do you think the consequences of it are? Well, first of all, with Xi Jinping and him just coming in, we realize we have one year under our belts of what presumably right. would be a 10-year. So to be determined, and if you look at what was said about the early uh, periods of predecessors, that didn't exactly become totally emblematic of their entire 10 years. So be a little uh, modest about that. But uh, I guess the first thing I would say is I do think they envision, and if you look at the 60 points coming out of the third uh, plenum in uh, November of last year, this is really an extensive mostly, but not exclusively, um, economic reform effort. And I do think they've probably gone with the tendency to uh, defer, uh, keep order in the political system so you can make the changes in the economic system and we'll worry about political reform, uh, at least of a more serious nature, down the track. Now, in all fairness, they did talk about independence in a very particular way of the courts in this right. decision and uh, doing away with administrative detention, and we'll see about that. So it wasn't devoid of political-related things. But I guess I would make a different point. Well, First of all, the longer they defer, I think the bigger the problem they're going to have when they get to it. So, But it, maybe they're doing the right sequencing. I'm not even saying that, but they're going to have a bigger problem when the adjustment has to be made. But the other thing I would say is that the core decision of this economic reform is to make uh, the market the decisive factor in the allocation of resources. And if you say that's the key decision, which I think it is, if it gets implemented, you ask yourself the question, who was the key allocator of resources before the market was? Answer, Chinese Communist Party. So what you're actually proposing is a more impersonal economic mechanism to distribute wealth and resource in society. And that is, to me, a very fundamental political change mm -hmm. underneath. So I think a lot of times we don't recognize that economic change is inextricably tied or part of or indistinguishable from political change. So. I, I'm actually, if, if they go with decisive force in allocating resources and really systematically, that's going to change and produce a whole lot of, I think, positive things. You talk about corruption. You say it's a, a time bomb ticking at the regime's clay feet, mm -hmm. is the quote from the book. Uh -huh. Yes. Explain, explain, you the, think, explain the quote. Well, if you were, uh, hasn't Xi Jinping pretty, with the, with the exception of the clay feet, hasn't he pretty much <laughs> I said? Was, I would say, what do you mean by the clay feet? Yeah. I guess what I mean is he's saying it's eating away at the legitimacy of the party. And in fact, Jiang Zemin said it, Wen Jiabao said it, Wen Jiabao went down to Guangdong and said we could have another cultural revolution. So I thought that was just uh, an English uh, vernacular way of putting what Chinese leaders themselves have even said publicly. Situational ethics mm. to describe China's foreign policy mm -hmm. view, I thought was a wonderful kind of way of looking at it. Explain to people what you mean. Well, I don't want to get to, to there, there's a wonderful uh, philosopher of science, uh, Joseph Needham, and he wrote, I don't know, was it nine or 19 volumes on science and civilization in China? Right. And he had a, a theory 
called the organismic theory of sort of Chinese thinking. But the basic idea was that Chinese don't necessarily think entirely in linear terms. They think in network terms. So when one relationship in the network changes, every other node or intersection in the system has to change. And what I began to look in my notes, it became clear to me, or at least repetitive theme, that as China is becoming more powerful, it's entitled to different things than when it was weak. And so as China's power position in this network adjusts, then it's right and fair that China expect adjustments in the network in the direction of more deference, more respect for Chinese interests. Uh, and that there's, in other words, there isn't just a world out there in which there is the rhetoric in Chinese foreign policy of all nations, big or small, should be treated equally. What I'm saying is that's not actually what I think they believe. And what I think they believe is the rich and the strong deserve to be treated with more respect and have more say in the international system than the rich and the poor. And in some sense, for much of this reform, we were dealing with a weaker China. And now we're dealing with a stronger China, and it's going to say, why do we have to put up with the U.S. Navy 12 nautical miles out? Why do we have to have a world in which the dollar's the totally advantaged mm -hmm. currency? Uh, you know, why do we have to tolerate weapons sales when we were weak and poor and couldn't do anything about it? That was one thing. But, and, 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 and my interviewees were very clear about this. I, it's amazing what you don't realize when you're in the moment. But you go back 30 years and say, this is what, what I've been told. I, wasn't I listening? Do you think this new, what they call National Security Council, is going to make a difference in terms of how Made. Well, there is, uh, uh, what strikes me is in the West, uh, and I would include people like myself, had hoped this, and I, I think it's a little too early to say, actually, right. okay, so too early to say, but the way it looks to me is many of us in the West hoped this would be a sort of body to coordinate external behavior so you didn't have the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Defense and, and provincial actors sort of acting on their own script and the and the central government trying to play cleanup after problems. Um, but if you look at the placement of the announcement in the, the 60 points, you'll, you'll find it's actually in the internal security. And, and so national security, or, or actually Guoja Anshan, uh, state security, actually has more of an implication of domestic security, which would include the periphery of China, Xinjiang, Tibet, um, Taiwan, and so forth. So I think this has a heavier component of internal security than uh, that maybe we would have hoped or thought. But may, maybe uh, consistent with when, when you look at kind of security expenditures, China spends more on, on internal security exactly. than it does on defense. Right. So that maybe, Which I think maybe tells the, the division in the, in the new council is similar. Which I think that. goes to the point that I was saying. When China's leaders get up in the morning, uh, their right. default position is well, all the things that could go wrong internally. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. What does this analysis tell you about the future of U.S.-China relations? Well, I mean, uh, well, we'll start with that, the organismic theory here, the network, uh, a rising China will expect more deference or more adjustment for its core interests than a weaker China did. And I think that means for the United States, we have to decide um, how accommodating we're going to be as a society. 
do we're going to have to make decisions about things if you think about the period from the, cold, the during the, the first 50 years after the cold war it was 4% or 5% of the world's people had what 35 plus percent of global gdp and now we have different figures but a, a much restrained we have people that uh, you know whether it was in india or it was in china the russians with idiotic economic policies during the Cold War that held themselves back. And now they're making progress. So we are relative, it's not that we're declining. I think our income and our welfare can continue to go up. That isn't the point. But our capacity relative to the capacity of others is going to have to require more accommodation. And I think, and that isn't to say where we accommodate. Yeah, that, that was my that's question. A separate. When you say accommodation, where? Okay, well, you know, I would what? ask a question which implies the, the answer I would give. Do we need to, as intensively as we are, uh, you know, uh, surveil along the Chinese coast of 12 nautical miles? Do we need to do that? I would ask the Chinese, do they need to engage in all the cyber activity that not only they, but apparently we are involved in as well? That would be one uh, uh, area. I think in some other areas, we've actually accommodated the Chinese uh, membership in the World Bank and, and voting shares and so forth. Uh, we've been, uh, well, certainly, I think, in almost all multilateral organizations have welcomed the Chinese in, and by definition. But, Accommod- but I think we're going to have to... I guess I, the word accommodation, it has, okay. it has a pejorative, a pejorative okay. sense in the U.S. Oh. political No, I discussion. just meant the Chinese... Take weapon sales to Taiwan now. I mm-hmm. think China's going to become progressively... It hasn't been all that patient all these years, but relative right. terms, I think they're going to become more insistent on that, that topic. So what I really mean is the United States has had its policies, and are we going to adjust them in the interest of perpetuating cooperation and achieving benefits in other realms? I don't mean it pejoratively. I just I think we have constituencies built around each of the arrangements that exist now. And so for us to adjust those uh, arrangements means uh, somebody bureaucratically is going to feel, or politically, that they've lost on that decision. So I don't think it's going to be very easy for us. Is that not clear? No, no. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, my, my reaction is based upon the idea, you know, people are always arguing that you shouldn't be accommodating, but as opposed to, is, is the U.S. interest when we, run, when we surveil the Chinese more, as Chinese argue, we surveil them more frequently and closer mm-hmm. to their territorial limit. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't do that, if we had a more kind of constructive relationship with the PLA, is that an accommodation or is that more a way well, of cooperating? In other words, well, I, I, I would say I, it's an it's accommodation, the, but the problem, it appears to me, is I think accommodation's a good word. Mm-hmm. or at least okay. appropriate accommodation. So I don't see it as <laughs> negatively loaded. I, I think life is about accommodation, at least life yeah. peacefully yeah. lived. <laughs> Good. Well, I promised I would open the floor to questions. We have Ambassador Platt. Uh, we have a microphone. Please bring it down, down front. So we have nice. the author of China Boys. Huh? And a great admirer of Mike <laughs> Lampton. Right here, an old, long-standing colleague. It's always been a, a, a mystery to me how Chinese policy, whether it's domestic or or foreign, gets coordinated. 
So my experience has always been that you have to go to the very top mm -hmm. if you want to get two ministries to cooperate with one another. You've got to talk to the vice premiers first. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I'm looking forward to reading your book and seeing what you will tell me about how Chinese policy gets coordinated. Mm. You know, that is, that is a key question when I talk about the reverse um, flow up the system of the insoluble problems. Uh, coordination is part of that. And, and it's interesting, you know, as, as my good friends will uh, know, my Chinese isn't terrific. But after all this time, it became very clear to me that when Chinese talked about their policy system, there was a repetitive xieqiao, coordinate, bring into a sort of harmony, adjust divergent positions. I mean, it's just, it's a, um, it's almost a ubiquitous word that goes into almost all discussions of policy with the Chinese. And you get attuned to the fact that it's not just two, two characters, one concept, but actually the Chinese bureaucracy is a rich... Um, constellation of what, for my political science students, I call cross-system integrators. That is, nodes where you have people of authority that can resolve conflict. And one of the interesting examples I give in the book is that actually Li Lancheng was vice, a vice premier. He was a cross-system integrator in my vocabulary. And he, he wrote up memoirs. I would say many Chinese memoirs aren't illuminating. His is Illuminating, published by Oxford University Press. And he talked about what it was like to be a vice premier and gave the example of three textile companies in his presence. And one claimed that they, and it was over who could control exports and, and get the revenue. And basically, he goes through this long negotiation, and at the end, he said, I, I signed an armistice agreement with them, and I knew they would be back the next period of time with the same argument. It never, it's just this, like this treadmill of the same parties arguing about the same things. But the point is you have these, these places where this happens. You mentioned in your question vice premiers. State counselors are generally the same kind of people at, at a half step lower in the hierarchy. Of course, the Politburo Standing Committee is the cross-system integrator par excellence for the more uh, uh, strategically important or difficult uh, issues. But then you have a whole array of what are called leading small groups. And one of the things that Xi Jinping has done is not only seize the chairmanship of all the important pre-existing leadership small groups, he's creating a whole b bunch more of them in which he's putting himself in charge. And I, uh, just to give a thought on that, a lot of people say Xi Jinping's getting more powerful, and certainly I think than Hu Jintao, I don't have a big problem with that. But it seems to me practically you have to ask, what is the span of control of any individual? What can a person effectively pay attention to? And this is such an enormous span of control he's assembling. Uh, I hope he's got lots of capable assistants. Is that vaguely responsive to what you asked, Nick? Yes, it's, it's moving me along the path. <laughs> Let's work our way back. Thank you. Thank you. Star Tavener, formerly Boeing, China. Ah. Um, you have an article, a nice article in Foreign Affairs. Thank you. Thanks. And you talk about the increasing role of Chinese public opinion. Hmm. Could you address the role of 
public opinion for policy making, particularly in places like NDRC and so ah. on? Now that's a, a really uh, interesting question. Maybe, did everyone hear? Um, it so happens that I worked with a colleague on a program on uh, China's development of civil nuclear power. And uh, this is germane to your question. And of course, uh, China needs clean electric power. And of course, you can argue whether nuclear power is clean if you don't know what to do with the waste. So I, I recognize all that. But relatively speaking, at least it's not coal dirty. And uh, so China has an enormous, um, I will say, tentative plan that could end up by 2030 or 2040, China having more civil nuclear or more nuclear energy electrical plants than any other country on the face of the earth. In fact, in probably any other continent. So this is a very big thing. So the question becomes, uh, and these things cost about, I don't know, two to three billion dollars per reactor. So we're talking really big investment. They have huge uh, footprints in the territory they're put. And uh, they've had demonstrations against plants. And of course, uh, the local officials often want these plants because they're revenue generators. Every kilowatt hour is just like a money tree. Uh, but the people that are living around these plants, you know, have all the fears that we all well acquainted with, and not less by Fukushima uh, example. And so the DRC was facing more and more problems, and in fact, they've issued a general regulation that there has to be an evaluation of public opinion before any big infrastructure plant project, not only uh, civil nuclear power plants, but big infrastructure and so forth. And they say that, that, that it cannot be more than a moderate degree of opposition. Now, I don't know. You give that kind of latitude to local officials, then they, 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 they've got some play on what's moderate at it and, and, and probably could doctor the numbers. But the point is the central planning agency of China has said we can't go ahead for basically legitimacy in our system if we don't have at least a basic level of um, popular either acquiescence or support. So I, in this whole infrastructure area, now I'm not saying that every official's operating according to this, but it was, it was actually a page article in China Daily, as I recall, <laughs> about the requirement for this. Also, you, just on public opinion, in, inside the party now, there, uh, you know, you've got what you call your party file and evaluation of your work over your, your uh, career. But part of that now is, for promotion within the party, is an evaluation of what the people that were under your, your constituents, let's say, in your last job. And that becomes part of the evaluation going ahead. Of course, there are many other things, corruption and, and, uh, and whether you did well in economic growth. So I'm, I'm not saying public opinion is the be-all and end-all. Um, so, but, but the point is, I think public opinion in that kind of straightforward way... Uh, I mentioned in the book, China, at, at last count, and those figures weren't too recent, but they were 50,000 public opinion polling operations in China. And I know you know uh, Victor Yuan and Horizon Research. I mean, this is, I will say, a world-class uh, public opinion operation. Um, so China's got the infrastructure there. Now, much of the public opinion is actually marketing and what kind of cosmetics to 
teenage girls like or you know whatever but but increasing percentage of it is really relevant to social stability what gets people they don't the chinese leaders want to know what's going to get people out in the streets and they've been very intelligent trying to preempt problems rather than deal with them after they've they've materialized so i think and then of course when you deal with hot button issues like malaysian airliner going down or or us bombs embassy in yugoslavia or or EP3 crashes and kills Chinese pilot or whatever, those kind of issues, they're very alarmed about people going into the streets and, and pushing them. And they, they, a lot of the what difficulty then we have negotiating with the Chinese or the Japanese have isn't so much that the Chinese leaders are always unwilling to do that. It is that they fear to be seen as weak by their own people. And I think they see that as a really big threat. Yeah. Yeah, Richard here. Oh, sorry. I wanted to get back to the Chinese professor who's in in prison. Um, <laughs> it surprises me that you were surprised by the premier's answer to that because it seems to me that that's sort of the obvious thing that he would say that I have bigger fish to fry. I can't uh, pay attention to every yeah. uh, every person, and it's also an evasion. It's probably an untruth, actually. I'm, I'm sort of guessing, uh, but. He probably knows perfectly well about that professor uh, being put in prison, and he knows that that's the way the system works. Can I just respond just right to that before you finish your question? Uh, The evasion part may well be true, Um, but uh, that's not the first time that question's been asked in my presence of very high people, and they usually say, I'll look into it. That's a much Uh easier answer. So actually, in the Richter scale of what I've heard, that was at least an answer. Before, as I, I don't know, and I'll look into it. And it isn't usually I'll look in it, into it and get back to you. It's just I'll look into it. <laughs> so uh, you, you, after you've listened to this, this much talk, uh, actually little things maybe assume more uh, importance than they deserve. Yeah. But actually the question I, I, I wanted to, well, thank you. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, um, and I wouldn't have thought of that. I mean, both of them are evasions, of course, but one of them is a little less evasive than the other. Yeah. Uh, but isn't the uh, it kind of relates to the what might be a fundamental issue in China? Uh, on the one hand, Xi Jinping and all the other leaders have uh, have uh, admitted to clay feet on the question of corruption, but on the other hand, they avoid the kind of political reform that would actually enable corruption to be tackled in a meaningful way. I mean, we all know that Bloomberg News was excluded, was barred uh, uh, from China, or the, uh, I mean, the, the website was shut down precisely because of the, of the article reporting on the wealth of Xi Jinping's family. By the way, the, you don't want to be a Chinese leader, but you would like to be related to a Chinese leader. Uh, There's an, that's that's a, a good observation. Uh, so what, I mean, is that, a, is that a, isn't, do you agree, I guess I'm asking whether you agree that political reform would be a way of dealing with corruption in a in a meaningful way that, oh. that can't happen uh, as long as they don't have political reform and transparency. Right. I, I think um, that's I don't want to say the point of my book, but it's an important point because I, I think I mentioned transparency and accountability. 
I said it, I don't necessarily associate the only ways to get that with voting, but it's certainly a convenient, rather universal way of getting it. Uh, but, you know, you've had progress, uh, admittedly, in a different situation with the Independent Commission Against Corruption in Hong Kong. They did deal with corruption. Of course, they had a Britain standing outside the system to impose some uh, order on it. So, uh, but of course, I think they're probably not going to be successful dealing with corruption until they have some fundamental, uh, well, the way I put it, bring their political institutions into harmony with the social circumstance they've created. And I think that, so there is no principal difference uh, between us. There may be how fast I think that can happen or how fast I think it's going to happen or what are the dangers. I think... But I do think, and this, this is what Chinese leaders would say, which is to say I believe them on this. China has such a long history of luan, chaos. And, and you know, chaos in China is not good for human rights. would be my basic bottom line here. So what we're stag- how can you get maximum speed of change, accountability, and all this political adjustment without losing control of the system? And I think, in, in C.H. Tung, I quoted him, he, he gave, you know, Chinese leaders are bred to be extremely cautious and see danger lurking around every corner. I think that's true. Now, it becomes an excuse for perpetuation of their own privilege, and I'm, I'm not disputing all of that. But you have to take their worry about chaos seriously. I do. I think that. And so I don't think it's entirely unwarranted. So I see it as threading this... How can we have maximally speedy change without destabilization? And I think they actually see the problem that way. I think the age of the leadership that this group of leaders today went mm-hmm. through the Cultural Revolution, and in fact, in Xi's case, mm-hmm. really spent a lot of time mm-hmm. um, in difficult circumstances, uh, affects this even more. And that maybe the next generation who was, you know, who really cultural revolution was less a part of their lives, maybe more willing to take on risk? Yeah, and I, um, I, as I think, the answer, yes, I do think that. And I, actually, somebody comes to mind. I don't, uh, we took a couple congressmen. I don't remember if you were with us, but we met a district leader in Shanghai. And you ask him about governing China. Well, I read USA Today. I read The, the Economist. I forget the list of international online. Right. Uh, I spend Very four hours leader. a day uh, uh, sampling uh, the opinion of people in Shanghai and the people I govern and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this guy could have been running in basically a, a westernized full democracy. Uh, and I agree. He's, I, I use him as my repeating example because you don't right. see too many of those. But I think that's I think that's the direction of change. And as China urbanizes, I think that's going to compound this or, or make it a more universal phenomenon. But, but I see this unfolding over decades, not months or years. Time for one, one last. How do you see the uh, heightened expectations of China in global affairs impacting on its future relationship with Russia? which seems intent on pushing its way back on the stage. Yeah. Well, you know, I think this is, in the context of current events, a really important question. And I'll I'll convey just my 
general attitude and then the specific circumstance. My general attitude is that under the surface, there are lots of reasons that make it difficult for the Chinese and the Russians to get along. So if the US plays its cards right, whatever that may be, or at least not maximally wrong, I don't think we have to worry about an unholy alliance of the Russians and the Chinese across the board. That's my general orientation. Uh, what I would adduce to be some evidence to support that, uh, the Georgia invasion of what, five or six years ago in the late Bush administration, China actually stood up to the Russians, said they weren't going to support that, uh, and in fact used the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to make sure they didn't. So I think that's an example. Now you look in Syria, they seem pretty tight, uh, that is to resist American and Western um, regime change versus Mr. Assad, to put not too fine a point on it. Uh, but there, I think the Chinese don't want to endorse, particularly after Libya, Western intervention in regime change for the very obvious reasons. In fact, the Russians in Georgia were trying to produce regime change there. So there's a kind of consistency. So now we get to Ukraine. The Chinese have come out in a maybe not as vocal and muscular way as we would like, but they've made it clear, at least to my satisfaction, they're not happy with what the Russians are doing. And it, once again, is what's Russia doing? Violating the sovereignty of a country, right? So I think the Chinese, at least in many of these the Russians, to the degree they cast their lot with violating the sovereignty of the post-Cold War era is the degree to which they're going to have trouble with the Chinese. It's time to close, but I just realized we, I meant to ask you, you just came back from Taiwan, uh -huh. and you met with some of the students who, yeah. have, who have been part of the Occupy the Legislature okay. movement. And then Can the you, executive yuan. And the executive yuan. Can you just give us 60 seconds on that? Well, uh, it reminded me of college campuses when I was on them in 1968. Uh, Well-motivated people. I think it's <coughs> fair to say uh, President Ma uh, and the Guomindang did not observe an agreement about how legislation on a services agreement was going to be handled. So there was, a, I'll say, a violation of a political agreement. But there, as I would understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, no violation of actual procedure. Uh, so complicated. Uh, but the students were upset. And, but, but the main point is that it came across is if you looked at the placards, you listened to what people were saying, this was really what you were seeing is fear of China. Uh, my little uh, metaphor here would be go to the Palace Museum. You can hardly get in the front door of the palace. All of us who went to Taiwan in the old days, you could go through the museum and hardly see anybody. Now you can't see the exhibits because basically so many Chinese have come from the mainland. I hadn't been to the Taiwan, Taipei Airport, Taoyuan, for a while. That is a, 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 it's too small for the traffic now. Hmm. And before, you know, you could go, you could get there 30 minutes before flight time and get clear through the whole thing. So you get this, this metaphor that the people of Taiwan see this enormous, dynamic, demanding society, and it's going to change their way of life. And I think that, that in the end, you know, there were old people there, not just students. Uh, and of course, then you get hangers on. The Taiwan independence people were there, and that was quite clear. All the DPP leadership was there. Uh, but if we write this off as just partisan politics, which I think a lot of it is, but it's more fundamentally about the fear of the Taiwan people of what it means to become progressively interdependent. 
And the placard that stuck out in my life was big red, China, with all these, um, I will call, life forms coming across the Taiwan Straits, drowning green Taiwan. I think that was, for me, the pictorial expression of what the fear is. Uh, and, you know, China's so big, so dynamic, and these 23 pe- million people, it, it isn't even, well, it's, for some people it's about communism and freedom, but in a way it looks like it's about way of life. Thank you so much, everybody. Get the book and Mike will sign. <laughs>